welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are sharing in full a conversation that I had with writer-director Madeline Olneck. Now, you'll remember Madeline and her film, Wild Nights with Emily, from last week's episode on three Emily Dickinson biopics. And if you haven't already listened, we recommend that you go ahead and go back and check that one out, because that is a great episode. Madeline Olneck is an award-winning film director, producer, screenwriter, and playwright. And so we are very excited to have her on the show for our series on adaptation. Her films include Codependent Lesbian Space Alien Seeks Same, based on a play of the same title, The Foxy Merkins, and today's focus, Wild Nights with Emily, which was also adapted from stage to screen. Wild Nights with Emily, which is now available on Hulu, by the way, is a romantic comedy starring Molly Shannon as Emily Dickinson. Now, the film is based on actual events in Dickinson's life, and it covers her attempts to get published and her lifelong romantic relationship with another woman, that woman being Susan, who we talked about quite a bit last week. Now, we're going to go ahead and join this conversation already in progress, Madeline and I are talking about some of the research that she did at the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst to prepare for the film. It's based on her, Emily Dickinson's lifelong relationship with this woman, Susan Gilbert, Mm -hmm. who eventually became her sister-in-law and lived next door. Um, And one of the things that really struck me when I first toured the houses was that Emily Dickinson's house was so light and airy and you could, the windows and the whiteness of the, you know, like it just so much up positive ish energy. And it was Susan's house that was dark and cramped and dark wood and narrow hallways. And, um, and it would, that was so interesting to me because you would always, you would think from what you heard of Emily Dickinson that it would be the opposite. Right. Like she would be in some like little hovel that was all cramped. I remember someone when I was uh, workshopping screenings of the movie, someone said to me, the only thing I thought I knew about Emily Dickinson was that she was crazy and lived in a woodshed. <laughs> like that's what that's what her mind had made of all the weird stories over the years, how it had distilled it years after grammar school. And so anyway, the the museum was very, very supportive uh, of the project and they actually presented it. Um, Amherst College had uh, uh, alumni alumni day parents weekend and they showed the film at Amherst the Dickinson Museum presented it and it was a full audience and Amherst College is very important in the in the story of the Dickinsons because um, they were in on the founding of it the treasurer um, they uh, and on the board and I mean they were the history of the Dickinsons and of Amherst College is intertwined um, and in fact Amherst College um, Special Collections has half of Emily's writings and Harvard has the other half, which again comes down to this um, ownership feud that was split between Susan Dickinson and the mistress of Emily's brother, who 
uh, put together the first books of Dickinson's work that Emily's sister had to pay to be published because no publisher would publish them. And when they finally got someone to agree if they paid, they, they, told, they were told they couldn't even retain the copyright. Mm-hmm. Like they, they could pay to publish it, but the company itself, the book company was going to um, get the copyright and they had to pay up front because the, the publisher didn't think a single copy would sell. Like they had to pay for all the books up front. Yeah. So when you think about that, that to me, that's very, that's a very inspiring story to DIY artists of which there are many. This the story of the film, like uh, when I had an early draft of the movie uh, script and um, Charles Rogers, who created the show, uh, co-created the show Search Party, mm-hmm. uh, came to this read through and he was like, Madeline, what is the dramatic question that you were trying to look at? And I decided the dramatic question was as it was for so many people after Emily Dickinson's success, when she became a big, after her death, when she, and she, this book came out, she became a big success. Women would just show up at the house and be like, is this where the lady poet lived? Because mm-hmm. they wanted to go and look and see like, how did she do it? So my dramatic question was, you know, how did this woman emerge out of the middle of nowhere to become the, the one of the greatest, um, American writers and poets uh, in the canon. Mm-hmm. And to me, there were, t- there were, it was two reasons. One, um, she had the, the love of a good woman <laughs> who was her reader. She had a re- who was also her reader who challenged her, who wasn't just like a muse, a passive muse. She was, she was her ma- match intellectually. And then the other reason was because she had an unrelenting PR uh, uh, representative in Mabel Todd, who was going to do whatever the hell she had to do to get that work out there, because it was her way of claiming a piece of Dickinson. It was her way of legitimizing her illegitimate position as the mistress in in that family. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the scenes that I wanted to shoot um, that I didn't get to, I, I, I didn't really, I didn't have it. And I, I didn't, it wasn't in the script, but it was, you know, you, as a filmmaker, you always have a wish list of things you could include in every project. And the wish list for Wild Nights was longer than my other movies, just because I wanted to do justice to Emily Dickinson. But before the first book came out, um, Mabel ended up at some boarding house with like, with a literary critic was there. And she set her cap at him like she was going to guarantee a good review um, for Emily's work. Um, And I don't know what exactly. (laughs) There was a dinner, some other things, maybe we don't Mm -hmm. know. But she knew, she was like, I need to line up the positive press. And unless I, you know, manipulate the press, we're just going to be shit out of luck. We're going to get bad reviews. She's a female poet. Everyone's Mm going to hate her. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So that idea of, to me, how the, the myth of Emily Dickinson, that personality that was spun of her, made it okay for people to read her work and celebrate her. Mm-hmm. It ironically also overshadowed the meaning of what she was writing to the point where some people didn't, couldn't even understand her poems and, or it, like in my case, didn't even want to read them right. based on what we had heard about her. Totally. That's such a great point. Cause I feel like the thing that we're always discussing on the show is just how does, how do people make it into the canon? And <laughs> I feel like as a kid, I, I thought it was just, just because they were the best, right? But then we talk right. about of how course, it's- Of course, I know. <laughs> right? It's so shocking. It's yeah. so shocking. And I mean, and yeah, that's, and that's, that's, but that's, you bring up a really good point because that's part of what was sold as the myth of Emily Dickinson. It was sort mm-hmm. of like, look at her. She just did her work and then her work was recognized. Like, that's what you think. If you don't, you shouldn't be out there promoting yourself. Uh, Nature works the way it should. The talented people are recognized. Even if they're women, they're recognized. Look at Emily Dickinson. She was a woman. She was, she was very successful. She just didn't want to be read in her lifetime. That's the other thing we're told, which is another myth that the movie takes on. That's Um, what I thought when I was a kid, for sure. About Emily they told Dickinson. Us that, but that's why you thought it was because that was the narrative that was fed to us. It was mm-hmm. very important. It was a very important part of the narrative. And it was a very important part of why her work could be celebrated. Now, I'm guessing that's what you thought about her until until what point? Like, what point did your relationship with Dickinson change? Well, I mean, I was already deep in research. Uh when I understood that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was when I um, found out that she sent 90 poems to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was the poetry editor for the Atlantic magazine. Mm-hmm. I was like, she sent him 90 poems? Like, are you fucking kidding me? I don't <laughs> know lot. if we're allowed to swear on this Yeah, podcast. that's fine. That's totally fine. I mean, it was like <laughs> anyone who goes and, you know, I don't know about you, but whenever I put something in the mail like back in the days especially you had to go to the post office whatever like your day was over like you Mm -hmm. that's a that's an effort putting sending your work out it's emotionally draining if you send it you're like what is what did they think you know it's like submitting for a film festival or a grant or whatever like you do not send 90 poems to the most important, he was the most important figure in American poetry in terms of being able to make or break women's careers. Mm -hmm. Um, And you do not invite him over to your house. And it was also when I read that when he came over, she just came down and talked nonstop forever Mm -hmm. at him. Like it was shocking to him. He was like, she wouldn't stop talking. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, she was auditioning. Right. Like she was trying to, in the, in the constraints of the time, she was trying to say, publish me. I'm important. My mind matters. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm want to show you how interesting I am. This, you know, this is who I am. I write these poems. I'm, you know, uh, and the idea, which I very much relate to 
um, that this guy was considered the champion of women writers and he turned down Emily Dickinson. Like, do you understand? Mm-hmm. Like, just like, how much must that have hurt? I like that you've put yourself right into Emily's shoes, too, because I think that's the thing that we're always looking for on the show. Like, oh, how relatable all these stories are. They are. Because something very similar happened with Louisa May Alcott and James Fields, essentially. She gave, I think he was, he was maybe the editor of The Atlantic at large at that point. She gave him a story and he was like, yeah, stick to teaching. There's no future in writing for you. Well, it's interesting um, how you're talking about putting ourselves into it, because I was thinking the other day that with gay movies, there was a period of time where it seemed like there were a lot of um, movies about people and their family that were of foreign cultures. Mm -hmm. And everyone would go to the movie and be like, look at that foreign homophobic family. (laughs) Too Mm -hmm. bad those foreigners can't, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but meanwhile, the whole society, our whole society was homophobic, you know, pre-marriage rights, you know, that's a homophobic society, not, Mm -hmm. you know, like everyone's just indoctrinated with a certain view, but in a way these movies became popular because it allowed people to look at homophobia without themselves feeling personally indicted. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like we can look at these stories of these women writers from the past and understand more about what affects women who are trying to write today in that same way. It gives people a comfortable distance where they can really think about what comprises sexism. Like why Mm -hmm. do we believe, um, where does what the story is and who's telling it um, provoke a reaction in me? There was so much that I wanted to include, but I also had to remember the demands of dramatic structure. Like I didn't want to hand up. And the other thing we found too was, I mean, even for Lavinia paying to publish the book, we had to have a visual for it, for it really to hit. So that's Mm -hmm. why she dumps that bag of coins, which I know it's, it's totally ridiculous, but she dumps it on the desk. Um, so that you remember that, but it is really shocking. I mean, it was so shocking that um, Alice Quinn, who's the head of the, was the head of the Poetry Society of America was like, are you implying that Emily Dickinson, <laughs> her first book of poetry, she paid for it. And I was like, uh, yeah, she yeah. did. You know, it is, it is so shocking, even to people in the know, you know? Yeah. So Same happened with the Bronte sisters. They paid for their first. Right, right. And I think sold, I can't remember how many, I want to say seven copies, <laughs> but not not a ton. But yeah, no, it's, it's. I think that is very shocking to people, but it was pretty, pretty common for a lot of women writers yeah, back and, in the day. And Emily had three pictures of women writers. She had a picture of one of the Brontes and George Sand and um, I'm blanking on the third person. Barrett Browning. But she had pictures. Yes. Yes. You knew this. So, so I she, wrote that in that my book. So I was like, thing. I hope it's true. <laughs> that was, well, it is. And we also got, we did a shot of that, but we just couldn't find a place for it in the movie. Mm. Um, and to me, when I read that, I was like, oh, like this is someone who very much sees themselves 
as in a lineage of writers. Like this isn't mm-hmm. an accidental poet or it, like that's someone who is very consciously practicing a craft mm-hmm. and sees themselves as part of this conversation. So the idea that she didn't want to publish is ridiculous, really. Yeah. It yeah. was very, very conscious, her engagement with writing. I always wonder about, you know, because Barrett Browning had a bunch of photos or pictures on her wall as well, of poets. And I'm like, was there a magazine? I just want there to be like a poetry heartthrob magazine that was produced that everyone's getting these pictures from. Pictures from. Yeah. Well, you know, the, those uh, daguerreotypes and like lots of people liked those images. People liked images and they were big on it. I mean, mm-hmm. especially in the in the mid to late 1800s, there was a craze for photography. Yeah. So people were very much into looking at images of people and having images of people. So, Well, speaking of photography, can you talk a little bit about that photograph of Emily that sort of, I would say recently within the past, I don't know how many years, has been sort of verified that it's her? Yes. Yes. The daguerreotype. And actually, mm-hmm. I met with the person who found that daguerreotype and oh, cool um and in fact meeting with him convinced me that we needed to include a storyline about Kate mm-hmm. because I Kate is this uh this other woman who Emily also had a very she had a very brief affair with Kate but the daguerreotype that emerged was of Emily and Kate um and they mention it. I don't know if you, you'd have to really parse the dialogue, but they're in a party scene. Kate says, you know, we pose for this daguerreotype or something like that. Um, there's a, she drops, drops mention of it. Well, um, so basically the collector was s- sorting around in, houses who he collect, was a collector of Dickinson stuff. He was very invested in, he's done a lot of research on it. And this was a house that um, the Provence of it um, was from Sam, Samuel Bowles, who was the uh, newspaper editor. We mentioned him. Um, his, there's a part played by the son of Samuel Bowles or whatever played like once again by Charles Rogers, who's getting a lot of air time in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the house was at one point owned by Samuel Bowles. So there was all this stuff that went from owner to owner of the house. And whoever the last owners were, I want to say this is probably, uh, I don't even know when. I want to say 2000 something, maybe not 99, maybe 2000 something. And this picture of these two women and it was Emily and Kate was, was his belief. He had it analyzed by an, an ocular surgeon. Um, and cause Emily Dickinson had a flat cornea in one of her eyes from 12 o'clock to four o'clock. Um, because your eyes, I guess, stay the same as we grow older what a lot of people don't understand about that very famous picture of Emily Dickinson is that she was like 16, 17 when that picture was taken with that daguerreotype. Mm -hmm. So that adds to her ethereal image. She's a teenager, but you think that's an adult person, right? Since that's the one picture. 
Um, so she really hated posing for daguerreotypes and refused to pose for one with her father, but she did pose for one with, with Kate, which says a lot about how important that relationship was to her. Um, but then when Kate, when it ended and Kate took off for Europe and hung out with a bunch of lesbodesians, you know, there, mm -hmm. like with a notorious, like Charlotte Cushing and those, that famous Shakespearean actress who was out at that time, mm -hmm. um, like that relationship. I, I mean, I don't know if you read so far as to read the book that came out in the 1950s, but that book, the scholar who was researching Emily Dickinson and found the descendants of Kate and thought, oh, these two women were friends. And the family was like, that's great. Here are all the letters we have, which for some reason they had never read. Mm -hmm. When she started reading the le letters and discovered the nature of the relationship, um, the family took the letters back and burnt them all. Um, wow. She still wrote the book. The book came out during the Red Scare when people were equating um, homosexuality with communism because uh, homosexuals were easily blackmailed was the idea. Mm -hmm. um, so a, homosexuality, a homosexual was a security risk. But when that book came out, the Dickinson estate, including the daughter of the mistress, um, were up in arms because they felt like if Emily was going to be known as a homosexual, was her work going to be yanked out of schools? Right. You know, all this stuff. And so they kicked into high gear. And that's when all of a sudden there were stories about Judge Lord, who was a friend of Emily's father and, you know, a senior citizen, <laughs> like yeah. the idea that the two of them were together. And what was interesting, because if you see the movie for people who haven't seen the movie, it's very funny just to see Emily Dickinson next to this elderly friend of her father when this has been billed as this great romance, it's a comic scene. Um, we showed the movie at the Society the um, for American, the conference for, what are we getting wrong? American women writers. Mm -hmm. We showed the movie and they were like, was Judge Lord that old? And we're like, yes, yes, he was that old. Because <laughs> I just thought of him Seeing as Seeing it like probably really guy. helped, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so when this book came out about Kate and that one was, you know, Susan was e an easier denial because there were those female friendships and that was very normal back then. Mm -hmm. But because this gal had, you know, left for Europe and been in those known gay circles, um, it was harder to pretend that this hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. um, kind of like if, you know, Emily Dickinson had, spend a summer with Melissa Etheridge, like everyone would right. know what that was about. <laughs> so they kicked into high gear. I, um, Mabel Todd's daughter said something like, I will not allow the work, my mother's work to be thrown away, you know, because she felt like her mother's life work was bringing Emily Dickinson to the public. And she didn't want that all to be thrown away. So that's when they're, they, uh, created this like who there's master these master letters who was that like that was all created those things had not been part of Dickinson scholarship before then they had not been studied there hadn't even been anything called master letters they were just scraps of paper um 
with a draft of something. And so all of that got spun then. Um, and again, you know, a very important part of keeping Emily out there, you know, um, was making sure that this part of her story wasn't told. Now, before you mentioned uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, she, so Emily's, uh, so Emily Susan, we'll call her. So Susan lived next door with, with Emily's brother. She had these literary salons that all these different famous people went to. In the movie, you see Emerson mm -hmm. going to them. Um, Harry Beecher Stowe came to a literary salon at Susan Dickinson's. Of course she did. This woman um, pops up all the time. <laughs> yeah. So she really, there really was a center. I mean, if it was a different time, Susan Dickinson may have worked in editing. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? She yeah. might've been, she probably, she would have had her own literary career and, but the time, time was back then and, um, but very much the story of the two of them is the story of how when, when young women struggle and try to figure out how, how do I become a writer? How do I make a name for myself? How does this all happen? It's helpful to have the bigger myths demythified. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really is helpful. Um, so that was the big story I was looking at with this movie. Um, for, ex for example, one of the things that was so interesting to me was Emily never met with Mabel face to face. So after Emily's death, the only time Mabel, that who again was the mistress of Emily's brother who put together Emily's first books for the Van Vanity Press publication, um, the only time she ever saw her was in her coffin. She saw, that was the only time she saw Emily's face. And to me, it was really interesting because that was sort of another driving force behind the whole recluse, 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 because mm -hmm. Mabel went to the Dickinson homestead for years and never saw Emily. Now, what people didn't know and what the head of the Emily Dickinson historical society said to me was you have to understand that when Dickinson scholarship started people didn't know that Mabel Todd was Austin Dickinson's mistress okay. and that she hated Susan people didn't know that they thought she was just the nice wife of a faculty member at Amherst College who wanted to help Emily's work be put together in book form mm -hmm. so she would say all these horrible things about Susan who she hated because she felt like Susan was in her way and she could just, she wanted to, have, Mabel wanted to both keep her husband and Austin. Um, she felt like the three of them got along well, I guess, in what would now be called the thruple. Mm -hmm. um, but um, she hated, she hated Susan, hated her. Um, and it was really hard after Emily's death and after Emily started, books became this huge success for her to assert her place. It couldn't be that Emily refused to meet with her because she was she was copulating with her brother within earshot you know, right house. you know <laughs> she couldn't be that she you know out of loyalty to Susan she didn't you know ever meet she refused to meet Mabel Austin wrote Emily notes begging her to meet Mabel Emily refused 
Um, so Mabel had like a lot of explaining to do after yeah. Emily's death as to why she never met, uh, why she never met Emily face to face. And for that reason, she had to push the whole weirdo recluse thing really hard. Mm-hmm. And we, I, you know, I'm sure you're thinking of this section in the movie where we sort of explain that. Um, and it was interesting because when we, when I screened the movie in progress, I was screening lots of times I'd bring, I'd have my, my intern bring a whole bunch of uh, college age kids. They'd all come and watch it. And then I'd have other people who were like my age, you know, people in there who were in their fifties or late forties. And, um, and the two groups would watch it. And I'd say, you know, do you understand that she's not a recluse? And the people, the older people would be like, no, she's a recluse. And the younger <laughs> people would be like, she's not a recluse. I saw her at a party. I saw her going across the yeah, lawn. Yeah. I saw, you know, so I had to keep adding things like to, because it could, it was so indoctrinated with older people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting because it just shows that how much of what we understand from a book or a movie, how much of that we bring to it. Yes. Um, which oh, is, man. which, Yeah. Can you actually tell me a little bit more about your relationship with Martha, uh, with Martha Nell Smith? Because that's really interesting. So was she an advisor in the film? How did you guys meet up? Well, uh, we first met, um, I, she was, there was this article in the New York Times uh, had, this was years and years ago, it was, I think, I believe it was 1998, Um and it, it was about understanding new things about historical figures through science. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things they talked about was look, looking at the erasures, using scientists, science to look at the erasures and Emily Dickinson's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and in this article, she told the story about Emily Dickinson and Susan and Austin's mistress and the, you know, this whole complicated thing, the revision of her personality for, you know, how she was marketed. And, and I was so, I was shocked because, okay, 1998, I hadn't heard anything about Emily, you know, having a lady friend. Um, And I, part of what you did at that time, as, as I'm very much like an old school gay person where you would be like people would just sit around at parties and name all the famous people who were gay mm-hmm. like in the past and the present you'd be like and so and so was gay and so and so and so and so you know and we mm-hmm. everyone knew all the names because we were looking for because at a time when this was again like some of this pre Ellen DeGeneres coming out there, there, we were looking for maybe role models, you know, mm-hmm. people to aspire to, people claiming your tribe. I don't know how you would describe it, but I had never heard Emily Dickinson ever one time, ever, ever. So I was shocked because I, I was living in, in Greenwich Village and mm-hmm. I was, you know, a re, you know, was a writer and reader and I was making plays and I had never heard anything about Emily Dickinson. I was like, what? And as I read, like, basically how all this happened. I thought it was so interesting. And then when I picked up a book, the book that was, this book was referenced called The Life of Emily Dickinson that had been the winner of the National Book Award. Um, 
this book which had been referenced in there and it was uh it was a book that was commissioned by Mabel Todd's daughter um to tell the life of Emily Dickinson as it involved her mother kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> and in exchange for all these papers once again the chest of papers that that uh that Mabel got her hands on initially that she gave to her daughter. God knows why her daughter, you know, she, she really should not have um, had the, have those papers, but it was kind of like a deal with the devil where um, Richard Sewell was the name of the biographer uh, agreed, you know, in exchange for access, you know, for a scholar to have access to these papers that no one else but you know, had. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he was also made, uh, she made him his mother's uh, literary executor of that. Like, so there were all these carrots thrown in. Yeah. Um, so this book was like basically painted the story of Emily and Sue, which was on along the lines of Mabel, which was Mabel said, oh yeah, Emily and Sue were close, but they had a falling out when they were teenagers and they never spoke again kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which is not true at all. But that was the narrative that that was put out. And in the book, there was this appendix. Um, Mabel tried to write her own biography, and it was called Scurrilous But True. Um, and it was like, when I read it, it was like laugh out loud. It was kind of a defense of, you know, her having this affair with Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was like smack talk. It was like trashy, like it could have been People magazine like all the stuff it said in it. And I just didn't think of writing in the 1800s being like, (laughs) right. Like I was like laughing. I was laughing as I read this stuff, like all the, she says all this stuff about Susan, you know, Susan didn't want to have sex with Austin. She called it low practices, you know? And I was like, okay, well that makes sense. You know, if she was basically a lesbian married Emily's Mm -hmm. brother like of course she didn't want to have sex with him um (laughs) but I thought it was so funny and that's because my or my background and what I've always done is comedies Mm -hmm. so Wild Nights with Emily is the most serious movie I've ever met made I was lured into it because of Dickinson's poetry and the story and there I do think there are a lot of funny things about it um but I had when I was reading this I just, I, I just thought it was so, so funny. And it was so different from everything I'd heard Emily Dickinson's life was like. So, mm-hmm. so I made a play version that was 1999. Um, I had written to Martha Nell Smith uh, at that time. I met her once at a reading. I couldn't get her to come see, you know, like there's a million, everyone would write to her and be like, I have my one woman show. I have right. My- this that but she wasn't gonna come um so I'd already um produced the it as a play in 1999 which if you can imagine all the way back then what that was like I mean I got good reviews but it was like Madeline Olnick imagines what if Emily Dickinson you know like like treated like up some kind of weird fantasy on my part when I we had already shot the movie. I've written to her since, but I maybe written to the wrong email. We'd already shot the movie and we had a cut of it when um, when I brought her in 
to take to look at it when she was like, oh, I'll, I'll look at it. So um, she gave uh, some notes, which were very helpful. And um, we had a lot of discussions um, that were very helpful. And and the thing is, is that I did. I did do an enormous amount of research. I went to, to Amherst on my own many times. I read many scholars. I read I was interested in trying to, as much as possible, rely on original source material from Emily herself mm-hmm. and and think about it that way. I mean, so that was, uh, so, so, I mean, I dedicated the movie to her because I feel like had she not been in that interview in the New York Times, like the way that she's really put herself out there and all the work that she's done helped bring the story to light. Um, since then, I heard from other scholars who felt very slighted by that dedication. <laughs> and I'm not trying to take away their work. It's right. just that I hadn't come across their work. I came across that interview in the New York Times Magazine because I read the New York Times Magazine. I wasn't reading Dickinson Scholarship especially when I thought she was a humorless drudge. Why would I? (laughs) So I I was trying to acknowledge, I mean, Martha Nell Smith really put herself out there at a time when, you know, it was really difficult to, it's almost hard to imagine how backwards people were in 1998, but they were extremely backwards. And to take a position like the position she took meant you were subjecting yourself to a lot of hatred. Was there maybe a letter or just a piece of like source material that you were particularly attracted to or just sort of inspired you? Well, I will say this. It took, you know, it was such a long slog. Sometimes I'm hard on myself and I feel like, I don't know, like I wish there were a lot of wishes. It wasn't until, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember where we were it wasn't until after the festival premiere and, you know, we had some, there was like this one review in the Hollywood reporter where the guy was like, just with like what you're saying reminds me, he was like, this issue is not at all decided in academia. It's like, since when do filmmakers wait for conservative academia? Like academia is is an institutionalized structure. Institutions are by nature conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, like and why should wait. you? Yeah, exactly. It's I mean, weird. it was very bizarre, but but it wasn't until the Amherst College screening, like we'd premiered, we were on the festival circuit. People, you know, people, so many people who saw it were so shocked that they hadn't heard the story yet. They didn't know what to make of it. Um, I did something which I don't regret, which was because I, I wanted to make a movie that would last. I didn't want to make it like a drama. I didn't want to make the mm-hmm. gayness like a surprise reveal. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted it right up front and then let's see how deep we can go with looking at this. Mm-hmm. Um, once I got a review of the play in Chicago that said I should have sa- saved the gayness as a reveal at the very end. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> but anyway, at Amherst College, what I did was this. 
I took all these, there are so many smutty Emily Dickinson letters to Susan. So many. Like she was madly in love with her. These are erotic letters. There is no other interpretation of these letters. So I made a PowerPoint and I put like choice quotes all the way. We've projected them on the screen. And during the Q&A, before asking any question, you had to read a quote from one of the letters. and it was really great and the and jane wald the head of the dickinson museum loved it because she was like yeah just put the source material right up there on the you know (laughs) and um i'm like desperate to do this now by the way yeah yeah you know what i should send you (laughs) let me send you that oh my god i have to find it but it's like it's like oh really i mean but there but again remember uh, there were so many re- different, there were contributing factors. One contributing factor, again, I know I'd mentioned Dickinson's handwriting earlier, mm-hmm. but even though technically the public could access these letters, I mean, it wasn't until Open Me Carefully that they were all put together. And even then there were so many passionate letters from Emily to Susan, so many and so many letters from Emily to Susan that the editor had Martha Nell Smith and Ellen Louise Hart um, there were too many, they were like, the book, this book is going to be too large, too physically large. You can right. only put in like a third of them or something. Mm-hmm. So, so her handwriting so hard to read. There's a split between the archives, as I mentioned, the ones at Amherst and the ones at Harvard, the mm-hmm. Harvard ones have the more, have the letters that are franker or more erotic um gotcha amherst, They've got amherst the smut. <laughs> yeah amherst has the more of the letters that are letters from emily to austin dickinson okay so i i appreciate that you're you're interviewing me about a movie because in talking about history they have found that people believe what they see more than what they read in terms of yeah. history and um even if you give someone a piece of paper that says the, the movie you're about to see is a fantasy and is not historically true, these things never happened. Mm-hmm. And then they watched the movie and then you gave them a test afterwards. They would be like, this happened, this happened. Like everything they saw, they would think happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just learned that the movie, which I never saw, uh, Gangs of New York, that, that the five point riot which we were told was between like white Irish gangs in that movie was actually a race riot where they were killing black people and throwing black people and babies at windows and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's like, we just, the, 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 the unfortunate uh, uh, side effect of just white men being the majority of film directors is that we're just seeing this, there's this one version of the world we're seeing. We're not seeing alternate versions of history. We're not mm-hmm. seeing any of that. Um, right. So because of that, um, we, it's like, it's it's not even that people are racist. It's just that but they are though, but they're mm-hmm. brainwashed. We're racism, yeah. homophobia, sexism, those are things that emerge out of our diet, mm-hmm. including what we watch. Um, so 
it's even more important that um, female directors and directors of color um, are are given the handle uh, the reins to to big Hollywood pictures because people really think what they think from what they see. I know you mentioned a little bit before, but yeah, was there anything else that that was on the cutting room floor that you really wanted to get in that movie? Probably a lot of things. It's yeah, difficult. oh yeah. Difficult. I mean, well, I mean, as it was, there was. I mean, when I went from it being a play to a film. It was, uh, I restructured it. A lot of the stuff that was funny in the play, you know, in theater, it's a very common um, trope to have one person play someone of many different ages and Mm -hmm. the audience just accepts it. In film, that's harder. So a lot of the scenes between young Emily and Susan with a lot more letters and stuff I cut because they weren't advancing the story necessarily. And, um, but it was interesting because when, even though the movie has less po- less poems and less letters than the play, people who've seen both think that the movie has more because oh, film really allows you to experience the experience a poem to sit inside of it mm-hmm. in a way that theater theater doesn't. Um, or maybe the way I did it, <laughs> but, um, but, um, there was, there was a day, this was very sad, a day of footage that was accidentally deleted. No, oh and no. If you want to talk about the heartbreak of yeah. making independent film, um, there was a silly scene where Austin, Uh, lectured Mabel on being dignified and he walks away from the camera and his pants are off like (laughs) some silly jokes yeah but that was a scene that was lost deleted and I just didn't have it in me to reshoot a nude Mm -hmm. scene um I mean not in me but like that was a lot to 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 lose Mm -hmm. um uh there I wanted one of the things that was never a written scene that I wish I could have included in the movie, but I couldn't because it wasn't part of the, this specific story was how Emily Dickinson uh, was a caretaker uh, Mm -hmm. basically to her mom who lived in the room right next door. Um, And I didn't, couldn't do that. I didn't have confidence that we, I mean, it wasn't a written scene in the movie, but it was like, I tried to think about Emily Dickinson's life and include every part of it relevant to the story we're telling. But that idea that Emily was a caretaker, like that's a big commitment. Like that's a lot to do to be the caretaker of of an elderly person, of your own parents and I wish I there could have been a way to include that, but I don't think we could have pulled off caretaking techniques of the 1800s. I don't think mm-hmm. we could have realistically aged um, the actress. Mm-hmm. Like I think that the fake aging would have uh, 
upstaged whatever we were trying to have the scene about like it would have mm-hmm. you know what I mean yeah um I wish I could have included that that's just because that was something that's like she had a lot of obligations she had a lot of work mm-hmm. that she did um she wasn't this person hiding in her room but that she was she was a caretaker to her parents was was a big deal um and part of her very active life so one of the um things that we do talk about a lot on this podcast is just how hard it is to make something. <laughs> it is so hard. I it's mean, really I, I, hard. I, I really didn't know if I could do this. I mean, to do a period film, low budget, you know, getting the rights to Emily's poems from Harvard was, mm-hmm. was, you know, um, a project and they ended up being very supportive, but it was, took a lot of time. And, um, lots of things it was it was very very difficult i mean i'm talking to someone like you makes me feel like it was worth doing mm-hmm. because you obviously are you you obviously um care about this world of women writers and in a way i went to a lot of work to very specifically capture a lot of different things that actually happened in Emily Dickinson's life, as opposed to just making up a whole fictitious story. I really tried to ground things in actual truths. Um, Even if I was dramatizing a scene, there is a truth, some historical truth in it somewhere of something of a letter of a something that was where this idea came from. One of the things that I was interested in showing was how writing, her writing process existed for her throughout the day. That's Mm -hmm. why um, we have that scene at the beginning, like a lot is made of Emily baking, you know, oh, she baked, she baked, gingerbread, gingerbread, gingerbread. But what people don't know is while she was baking, she was writing little poems down on scraps of paper. Mm -hmm. Like, so that it was really integrated through the day, how she was, she was constantly working on her work. So mm-hmm. we had that. And I also wanted to show how she would try different, she would try alternate endings mm-hmm. of, of lines. So if you look very carefully in that scene in the beginning, when she's, when she's making gingerbread, um, you see that she writes a different word, a different alternate ending on that little scrap of paper. Um, Sometimes she would have like as many as like five different words as a possibility of the last word, uh, the end word of, of a line of each line or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that idea that she was constantly working and she was, um, it was integrated in her, in that throughout the day, like even when she was gardening or whatever, mm-hmm. that was really, I wanted to show to step inside the process of writing and make it alive to people. Mm -hmm. Um, But the mistress thing, it is so funny. Um, And I really, I really enjoyed working with Amy Simons on this role because she, she really, she brought so much to it. And she was like, look, I don't want to do a two dimensional portrayal of her where she's just a bitch. Like, I don't Mm want to, do that. Like, let's look at 
what were her motives and stuff. And one of the things that we added to the film was uh, when I came across the fact that there were these letters where, where Mabel was pleading with Austin, let's publish a book of our love letters mm-hmm. while the two of them were alive, while they were having an adulterous affair mm-hmm. in New England, in Puritan New England. He was the most important man in Amherst. He was the de facto mayor of the town. There was no mayor of Amherst, but he was the treasurer, which made him essentially the mayor, the most important person. And um, and he was like, basically, like, are you crazy? <laughs> like, no, you can't, you can't publish a book of our letters, of our love letters to each other. Um, and she, so he censured her. So that was before she got her hands on Dickinson's poems and her letter poems and different things. So it had already happened to her first. Mm-hmm. Um, so God, I, I wish that book would have happened. That would have been an amazing scandal. Well, actually, the there is still there is still, but now Polly Longsworth, the scholar Polly Longsworth, has this book called Mabel in Austin, mm-hmm. where you can oh, okay, you can I'll read, read a lot of these letters. It's really interesting, and actually, um her letters are actually good. I mean, his letters are just total garbage. They're just like, I love you. I love you. I love you. Why can't I say it? And why shan't I say it? Like, just like really stupid, self-involved, whatever. But hers are like, oh, it was like, oh, she was a good writer. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, another one who didn't quite find, you know, who could have had her own, her own, you know, career other than as a purveyor of, someone else's work um but she was very savvy you know and she got dick she got uh thomas wentworth higginson to go to bat for emily after emily's death in a way that emily or susan could not get him to do anything for emily during her life would have been a great agent yeah what, what, we would have had a place for a Susan today or for a Mabel today, I think. Well, well, but I mean, what's what's depressing is that she, everything she got was through her sexual wiles. Yeah. That's what makes it depressing. But it's yeah. interesting in a way it's but it's in a way it's also less depressing because I guess the biggest thing for for people trying to make things is they people wonder like, why is it so hard? Is it me? Am I not good enough? And understanding that even with Emily Dickinson, you know, it took like an incredibly manipulative person to get her work out there. It wasn't like Mm -hmm. the world just worked the way it should. And her, you know, her talent was dutifully acknowledged and promoted. It took all sorts of machinations to break through. And that, in a way, even though the, that idea is depressing, it can actually be a hopeful idea in the sense that people who are struggling and having difficulty can understand is not just me. And we're back. One thing I really appreciated about this interview, Lauren, was when um, you and Madeline were discussing how like internalised homophobia and belonging to a widely homophobic society affect how we read the works and contextualize the lives of women writers mm-hmm. and Madeline kind of exploring um, the work she had to do as a writer to unlearn what she was taught about her during the research process. Mm-hmm. 
Also, the bit about getting the permissions from Harvard really resonated, <laughs> obviously. Because I think that's why you didn't, that's, that's why you didn't why... include Emily in yeah. why she wrote. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. That was like biggest reason. And then also I really felt like um, the story Madeline told would, would have been the story that I would have wanted to tell mm-hmm. of the sort of the, of Mabel and the myth making surrounding Emily. And I was like, oh man, it's she's done, done it. <laughs> I think as well, you also like the homophobia thing. I think you both talked really nicely. I don't think nicely is the right word for it. Um, Just about how the same thing does happen with women of colour. And you've Mm -hmm. kind of got these two communities, like the queer community and uh, people of colour who are writing, but just aren't biographised or there's no films about them. Their works aren't kept in the canon. So just, yeah, a really wonderful conversation to listen to. So... Thank you. Now, next week, we are moving from screen to stage, and we will be returning to an old fave by the name of Austin, Jane Austen. If you're unfamiliar uh, with Jane Austen or who she is, we've talked about her quite a bit. Um, And a good place to start, I'm saying this as if anyone has not heard of her, obviously, but you can always start by visiting our social media uh, you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join an active community of listeners and classic lit fans by searching for Bonnets at Dawn on Facebook. True story. You can also buy Why She Wrote from Chronicle Books. And we've got a section on Jane Austen in there as well. So you can can read up on her. <laughs> And no Emily Dickinson. (laughs) Just one little cameo. (laughs) 